0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. What do you do when you are caught in a storm? Last summer I was out on a morning walk and walking the loop around our neighborhood and I was about 10 minutes or so from our house and as I was walking I could see that there was a storm on the way. It it looked like it was already raining at Chad Binger's house from what I could see for those of you that know where I live and know where Chad lives to give you some perspective I guess. And it was a little bit of an unsettling feeling. I considered calling Whitney and having her come pick me up, but I decided instead probably the responsible thing to do was just move a little faster than I would have liked to get back to our house in time before the rain really set in because there's not much you can do when you are face to face with a storm. You can plan ahead as best as you can, you can check the forecast, you can dress accordingly, but if you are outside, if you are caught out in the middle of a storm, there is not much you can do to make it go away. And that's true of rain and thunder and lightning just as much as it is true of the metaphorical storms of life. I don't know what kind of storms you have dealt with in the past, what you are dealing with right now, or what you might deal with in the future. I'm pretty confident you will have to deal with them at some point or another. And those storms could be changes at work, they could be problems with your health or the health of a loved one, it could be financial uncertainty, it could be tension with your kids or in your marriage. I don't know what it is for you, but I know there are seasons of life for all of us where things are uncertain where plans get interrupted, where we are left unsure of what is happening and what is going to come next. And it seems, most of the time, that those seasons and the uncertainty around them tend to produce fear in us. And fear tends to bring about questions. Questions like, why is this happening? Questions like, who is responsible for this? Questions like, what can I do to fix it? And our first attempt to answer those questions might be to try to fix things on our own. We might try to work longer hours to make things better. We might detach from whatever we are dealing with in order to insulate ourselves from the pain. We might make bold promises about changes we'll make in the future. You might know history is littered with stories of people who made drastic changes in their life because they promised God that if he saved them from a specific situation that they would do so. The story goes that the great church reformer Martin Luther was fully intending to become a lawyer until he got caught out in a thunderstorm and he prayed to God that if God spared him from that thunderstorm, he would become a monk. And he was spared and the rest, I guess they say, is history. Within our own movement of churches, it is said that Alexander Campbell, one of the founders of our movement of churches, vowed to become a minister after he was delivered from a storm while he was out on a ship. And the story progressed from there, and we might not do something that drastic, but we might do something similar, promising to never do something again, promising that God, if you will get me out of this, I will make up for it one day or whatever it might be. And those promises, even if they sound pious to ourselves because we're we're praying to God that if he will do this thing for us, we will pay him back in some way. At the end of the day, those things are still acts of trusting in ourselves. There are actions that think that there must be something that I can do, something that I can offer that will get me out of this problem. And I don't know about you, but in my experience, the storms of life tend not to be solved by trying harder, by making bold promises or whatever it might be. When we're truly caught in a storm, we need a power greater than ourselves. Ultimately, what we need is the power of Jesus. And having Jesus does not guarantee we will be delivered from storms immediately, but it does mean we will have the one with us that is greater than the source of our fear. And if we have one with us who is greater than our fear, that goes a long way to answering whatever questions we might have. And as we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark up to this point, if you've been with us, you've seen quite a bit. We've been looking at scenes where Jesus is in a confrontation of some sort, We've seen him confronted by Satan in chapter one. We saw him confronted by his family and the religious authorities in chapter three. Today we're going to be looking at chapter four at the end of that chapter and see Jesus confronted by nature, which is a different beast entirely. He's demonstrated his superiority so far in all these other confrontations, but but there are things that we could imagine a human being navigating. You know, someone who was very spiritual, had, a, had an intense connection with God, could maybe navigate temptations from Satan fairly easily. A wise person could... Could navigate tension with their family pretty easily. A good politician could handle the religious authorities around them. There aren't too many people, in my experience at least, that are able to enter into direct conflict with nature and expect to be successful. But this is what Jesus does in this passage. He is He's already demonstrated in this chapter, in the passage we looked at last week, his wisdom that he is a good teacher. We saw that through the series of parables that he tells. Now he validates his wisdom, he validates his authority as a teacher by demonstrating his power in a way that is different and surprising and amazing. So I want to walk through this story with us today, picking up in Mark 4 at verse 35. It says, That day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to his disciples let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. If you remember the passage we looked at last week, it began by telling us that Jesus has too big of a crowd around him, so he gets into a boat on the Sea of Galilee and pushes out a little bit to allow the water to amplify his voice so that the crowd can can hear him. And now we get to the end of that long section of teaching and Jesus and apparently his disciples, they're already in this boat. And so he tells them it's time, let's get in the boat, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And so Jesus and his 12 disciples start doing just that. Mark tells us there are other boats around them and it seems to start out as a fairly peaceful evening, but it doesn't stay that way. Picking up in verse 37, Mark says a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? You may know if you've read the gospels that the sea of Galilee sits in a low basin with high mountains around it. And so that means that it is pretty easy for winds and things like that to blow into that basin and whip up pretty severe storms on pretty short notice. And that's what happens here. This is not a, a nice summer rain or anything like that. The word that Mark uses in verse 37, it is a word for a whirlwind. It is a word for a hurricane. And Mark modifies that word with the Greek word megale which means great, and you might be able to hear our word mega within that word. This is no storm that you sit on the back porch and watch it rain. It is a serious, dangerous situation. Even the experienced fishermen among Jesus' disciples who have made their living for years on boats on this body of water, they are at a loss about what to do. Waves are breaking over the boat. It seems like a foregone conclusion that it is going to go underwater at some point. Everyone is desperately trying to literally keep the ship afloat as long as possible. And with all of this commotion, Jesus, tired after a long day of preaching, I'm sure, is asleep in the back of the boat. Now I can understand dozing off if you're in the back of a boat and it's a comfortable spot and you're enjoying the rocking of the waves. I can't get my mind around being able to sleep on a boat through a storm. And the disciples are dealing with a lot at this moment, so I don't want to read too much into their thoughts. I don't want to assume they have a lot of time to sit back and deliberate about what they make of Jesus asleep in the boat at this moment. But I have to wonder what they think about it, and I have to wonder if it's reminding them of any of the stories from the Old Testament they've heard since they were children. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is reminding them of Jonah, that Old Testament prophet who fell asleep on a boat during a storm. In Jonah's case, you might know if you've read the book of Jonah, that he was on a boat because he was in rebellion against God, and God sent this great storm on this boat to be able to pull Jonah out of his rebellion. And so, are the disciples making any connections in their mind in this moment? Is Jesus a prophet like Jonah, someone in rebellion against God? In the story of Jonah, it took throwing Jonah overboard to get the storm to stop, or any of them volunteering to be the one to throw Jesus over the edge of the boat at this point. I, I don't know. Whatever their collective thoughts are, they decide that if nothing else, they probably need an extra set of hands, and so they wake Jesus up and ask him if he even cares if they drown. I mean, Jesus, what what good is all this teaching about this kingdom that you're supposed to be bringing into the world if we're all at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee? Wouldn't anyone in their right mind wake up at all this commotion? Don't you have some advice? Isn't there another bucket laying around you can pick up and bail some water? Can't you do something, Jesus? Don't you care if we drown? And when you're in a storm, it's natural to be afraid, and it's natural for that fear to lead questions and often we can express those questions when under stress through anger the disciples show us this here Uh, obviously Jesus cares whether or not the boat sinks any sane person would care about such a thing so why is Jesus asleep the disciples don't know they can't comprehend and so they ask Jesus this terse question because the assumption is that if he is who he said he is then he should be able to do something Some of us have maybe felt that way. When life gets hard, it seems like Jesus isn't meeting our expectations. Anger is a potential response. Ultimately, it's an incomplete response, but just because it's incomplete does not mean it is inappropriate. When you're in a storm, it makes sense to cry out to God. When life is not going as we think it should go, it's natural to want answers, and our Bible is full of people wrestling with just that fact. When you read through the Psalms, you find prayers like Psalm 74, a prayer that is being prayed to God as God's temple is being destroyed and his people are being conquered, and the psalmist cries out in Psalm 74:11 to God, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Destroy our enemies. Or to put it in a little more contemporary language, the Message Bible says, Why don't you do something? How long are you going to sit there with your hands folded in your lap? This is a prayer offered to God. Now that verse might tell us any number of things, but it at least tells us that God is not afraid of our frustrations. It at least tells us that God is not afraid of our questions. We do not run the risk of being squashed like a bug when we cry out to God. Otherwise, verses such as Psalm seventy-four, eleven, and Mark four, thirty-eight would not be in our Bible. But just asking questions, just getting angry is not the end of the story. Although this has not gone the way the disciples have liked, although Jesus has not acted as they have expected, he does stand up to do something, and when he does, amazing things happen. Picking up in verse 39, it says that Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I find it interesting that Jesus does not respond to the disciples' question. He stands up in the back of this rocking boat. He rebukes the wind and the waves. He commands them to be quiet, to be still. And just as before in this gospel, he has commanded demons to leave people and they have gone running. As soon as Jesus speaks, this storm is gone. This might sound obvious, but human beings are not supposed to be able to control the wind and the waves. That was as true in Jesus' day as it is now. In the ancient world, the sea was viewed as a realm of chaos and evil that you could not hope to control. And yet here, in just two words in the original language, Jesus has changed this scene from chaos to tranquility. He has done so with no need to appeal to a higher power. He's done so with no need to perform an elaborate ritual. By simply speaking, the water and the wind have followed his orders like a parent telling telling their kid that it's time to go to bed these elements that you and I can only try to forecast as best we can and still get wrong most of the time, submit immediately to the words of Jesus. And he still doesn't answer the disciples' question. I suppose calming the storm is enough of an answer on its own. But now he has a question for the disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? On one level, with the benefit of hindsight, that feels like a fair question to ask. We can wonder, you know, how could the disciples be so dense? Didn't they realize who was in the boat with them? And if Jesus was with them in the boat, then everything would be okay. But at the same time, I think the fear of the disciples is reasonable enough. Why were we so afraid? I don't know, Jesus. Maybe it's because we were just in the middle of a hurricane. That that seems to make people a little uneasy at times. Yet as much as we might understand the fear of the disciples, Jesus' question, why are you so afraid, do you still have no faith, is the question that matters. And the answer we give to it, whether we're the disciples in this story or you and me today, that is the answer that makes all the difference. The problem the disciples have in this story is not a lack of ability. Their problem is not a lack of effort. Their problem is a lack of faith. It is a lack of trust in who God is. They did not understand the one who was asleep in the back of the boat, and therefore they were driven by their fear. If they had understood who was with them, they would have had a very different perspective. Because now that they do understand who is in the boat with them, they come to realize he is not like Jonah at all. He is, as he says elsewhere, the one greater than Jonah. Where Jonah rebelled against God's desire to proclaim his name to a foreign nation, Jesus has come so that all the world might know the love of God. Where Jonah ran from the call of God in favor of his own self-interest, Jesus submits to the will of God entirely. And where all others have failed, Jesus is faithful. Because that is who he is, fear has no place. It might be easy to read this story and wonder how the disciples could get it so wrong, but but that perspective ignores how often this story has been my story, and I'm guessing it has maybe been your story at some point or another as well. We live in a world that runs on fear. If you don't believe me, just turn on the evening news. We are given story... After story of problems in our world, whether it's wars abroad, whether it's chaos in our own nation, whether it's crimes taking place right around the corner, and we are told all of these things to make us worry that maybe these things are going to happen to us or affect my life in some negative way. Then we go from these depressing and fearful news stories to commercials that tell us that there's a hole in our lives right now and the way to fix it is to buy whatever it is that they are selling and we're left wondering if maybe we're missing out, if we need to buy some more things and then things will be okay. While all that's going on, our phones usually aren't too far away from us and they are buzzing and ringing and doing all sorts of things, reminding us that there's a, there's a world happening out there, there are things we might be missing out on and you have to pick that thing up and respond immediately or else you will be left out and all of that together promises to fix the fear in our souls and it leaves us overstimulated and burned out Trying to solve that emptiness within us with all sorts of things, whether it's entertainment, whether it's alcohol, whether it's medication, whatever else it might be. And the whole time we are in that cycle, we're bailing water, wondering why Jesus is asleep, forgetting that he has never left us. And I don't say that to minimize the storms of life. The storms of life are real. Whatever it is you're going through, it is real. It is just as real as the storm the disciples are dealing with in this passage was real. The fear that those storms bring about are real. I'm not asking you to stick your head in the sand and pretend everything is okay when it is not. But I do want to remind us that our fear is nothing compared to who Christ is. When we live in fear, we are forgetting the one who has promised he will never leave or forsake us. We're forgetting that he spoke the universe into existence and he rules over it eternally. So as real as our fears may be, the message of Jesus tells us that the care of Christ is always greater. But ironically, when we understand that, we come to find a different sort of fear at the very end of this passage. In verse 41, after Jesus has asked them why they have such little faith. Mark tells us the disciples were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. After the waters are calm, Mark tells us the disciples are terrified. They're not terrified because of the weather. They're they're terrified because of Jesus. Jesus. This fear is greater than any fear they had about the storm. Jesus asked them why they were afraid in verse 40, and the word he uses there is just sort of a general word for scared or timid or uh, fearful, something like that. Jesus essentially asked them why they were afraid of the dark as they're turning on the nightlight or something like that. It's that level of fear. Here, when Mark tells us the disciples are terrified, literally what he says in the original language is that the disciples feared a great fear. They were scared of the wind and the waves before for good reason, but now that Jesus has shown that he has power over them, they are shaken to their core. Jesus has never responded to their question, and now that he asks them a question, none of them have the nerve to respond to him either. They look at one another. They're trying to make sense of what has just happened. They have some conversations amongst themselves, but no one is willing to address Jesus. They're terrified. And they feel that way because they know what the Old Testament says about who controls the weather. The disciples know their Old Testament. They know passages like Psalm 89.9 where the psalmist says to God, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. They know passages like Psalm 107 verse 29 that says that God stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. The Old Testament is pretty clear that the only person who has hope of controlling the chaos of the sea, is God himself. You don't just stand up and tell the wind and the waves to be quiet unless that's who you are. A human being might be able to deal with criticism and controversy. A human being might be able to cast out demons. A human being maybe could even be able to heal heal someone who was paralyzed. No human being is able to control the weather. So if Jesus has just demonstrated he has authority not only over the human realm, but nature as well, he's not just another prophet. He's not just the latest rabbi on the block. He's not just a good religious teacher. He is God himself on earth for us in this boat with the disciples in this moment. Jesus might have seemed a lot like Jonah. He might have seen like a prophet who got caught in a storm, a prophet who was potentially in rebellion against God. The only way Jonah could stop the storm he was caught in was to sacrifice himself. If you know in Jonah chapter 1, the sailors on the boat throw Jonah overboard, the sea immediately grows calm, and the sailors that are still on the boat worship God as a result. Jesus shows that he is greater than Jonah by stopping the storm with his words. He's not just another prophet. He's the one who spoke creation into existence. He does not need to be thrown into the sea as a sacrifice. He is God himself who is to be worshipped in the boat as he is because he holds authority over all things. And yet while the one greater than Jonah does not sacrifice himself here, you may know if you know the rest of the story that one day he will Jonah sacrificed himself, he was thrown overboard, and the result of that down the line was that Nineveh, a city of 120,000 people, was eventually able to hear the message of God's forgiveness them. Later, Jesus will sacrifice himself on the cross so that all people for all time, all across the globe, can experience the grace of God. Because the one who can calm the seas was thrown into the sea of sin and death on our behalf. And we can have life with our God that we do not deserve because of the forgiveness he has made available to you and me because of that act. And because he has done that, we do not need to fear. What we fear does not compare to who Christ is. I don't mean to minimize what you're going through. I don't mean to tell you just to grin and bear it. I don't mean you just need the power of positive thinking. What I mean is that the power of God who rules over all things is available to you in Jesus because he has died and risen from the dead for you. And that changes how we deal with sickness. That changes changes how we deal with difficulty in our marriages and in our parenting. That changes how we deal with death itself. It changes how we deal with financial uncertainty. It changes how we deal with everything. Because if God has drawn near to us in Jesus, if He has shown Himself to be capable of calming the storms, that means no matter what we fear, no matter how real or present it might be, it does not compare to the power of Christ. It may seem like He is asleep in the boat. It may seem like He has forgotten about you. It may seem that things are not going as you have hoped, and if that is you, I am here to tell you, He has not forgotten about you. He is still with you. He is still for you. is still on your side and I say that even though I don't know I can't guarantee how your story will end but I can say that the one who is stronger than the wind and the waves is stronger than everything else even death and therefore we do not have to live in fear but we can live in confidence that Christ is always greater and because all of that is true we are left to respond This passage ends with a question the disciples ask who then is this and at least for now we don't get an answer to this question. The disciples are left in wonder trying to make sense of things for themselves of who Jesus must be if the wind and the waves obey him and it's a question they've not worked out a complete answer to just yet. But if you have been reading the gospel of Mark you have already been told in chapter 1 verse 1 that it is a story that is about Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. And that verse answers the question that the disciples ask here at the end of this story. Who then is this? He's the one who has come to bring the good news that we can enter His kingdom by grace. He's the one who calms the storms. He's the one who is greater than our fears. He's the one who invites us to come to Him. So no matter who you are, You can respond to who Jesus is and what he is saying to you with confidence that he is greater than your fears. You can take the next step in faith. You can say yes to following him for the first time if that's a decision you need to make. You can pass through the waters of baptism if that's a decision you need to make to say that you are stepping into this faith for yourself. You can repent of sin and be renewed. You can give up your fear and have peace in Jesus. You can step in faith knowing that the one you trust in is greater than the wind, the waves, and sin, and death itself. He's come to bring you life. He's the Son of God. So come have life with Him. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are worthy, that You rule over all things and are worthy of our worship for all time. We praise You for what You've done for us in sending Your Son, Jesus, to bring us life. God, just as the disciples are on a path of figuring out what it looks like to respond to the fact that you are the Son of God, we come before you now also as a group of people coming to terms with who you are and working out what it means for us to respond where we are. So I ask that you give us wisdom through your Spirit to help figure out how to walk in faith with you where we are right now. We ask that you would be glorified through us as your church right here in this time and place where you have situated us. That you may be praised through us now for all time because you're the son of God who has come to give us life. We ask all this in his name. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.